pushing back the barriers of scientific ignorance. I love it. Gross. I know a, I know a cat that really, really likes asparagus. Really? Yeah. Oh. Which is really bizarre. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused and bewildered and lost and completely dumbfounded by that latest health study as I am by having to spend eight <laughs> having to spend eight full hours without my phone. Wait, wait, so wait. Before you're in London too, so you're driving on the wrong side of the road and everything. Oh no, that 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 makes it even worse. So before break, I had to get my phone battery fixed and and uh i was without my phone for eight hours don saw me wandering around the office completely <laughs> lost it was perhaps the worst eight hours i have spent yeah you were like in a cold sweat bumping into walls it's it was, really I, bad anyway i am matt fox from the departments of epidemiology and global health and i am here as always with chris gill and don thea from the departments of global health at the boston university school of public health happy 2019 matthew and welcome to the new year, as Chris says. For those of you who don't know, I thought I would let you know that I have actually relocated to a new country, as Chris alluded to. I am in England I th- for I the- I think it's actually, Matt, a very old country. I don't think that England was just that created. Is, that is a fair point. It's, it's, it's quite a bit old, but I, I, it's new to me. New to me, I'm here for the semester on sabbatical, um, and in the uh, process of moving, I have uh, come to realize that you need more adapters for every single device <laughs> that you have to live in this place to solve uh, all of the connection problems I have. And I found the solution to this problem, which is you go to the Population Health Exchange website. Now, they don't actually sell adapters but they're going to help you adapt to the new world of public health. They've got oh all ki- – yeah, I know. That was for you, Don. Stretching it. They've got all kinds of lifelong learning tools, programs, and classes. I would go and check it out at www.pophealthex.org. Go there and you can find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And always a reminder, if you could uh, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you kids are using to listen to this podcast. And uh, now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study about the effect of an antibody on Alzheimer's disease and whether this is actually a game changers for Alzheimer's treatment. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we're going to talk about a study, a a report that I should say that came out on on conflict of interest in medical research. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just help me get through the move to a new continent. So let's get into it. (laughs) So uh, segment one. England is not a continent. What's that? Technically, England is not a continent. Well, that is good. not to be part of the European Union either, apparently. That is a that is a fair point. But for me, I'm going to say it's a continent. That gets us to the whole question of how many continents there are in the world. And apparently, depending on where you live, you have a different number of continents you believe there are. So how many do you think there are? I don't know. It's, it's like the same number of its continental breakfasts. I believe there are seven continents. But I've been I... told here that North America and South America are one continent. I'm not going to vote because I'm incontinent. Oh. Okay, anyway. So the study that we're looking at, uh, which Don's was trying trouble because his diesel wouldn't start this morning, <laughs> <laughs> which was age. using uh, an antibody to fight Alzheimer's disease. The study was published in Nature, 
in 2016. So it's not it's not entirely new, but it's close enough. It was by first author Jeff Sevigny of Biogen, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The study was titled The Antibody... How do I pronounce it? Aducanumab. Aducanumab reduces alpha-beta plaques in Alzheimer's disease. Did I just yep. totally ruin that? No, 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 no. That's no. good. Yeah. You want to? <laughs> I did my Anucanumab. best. Aducanumab. Yeah, Anu- any, any, Aducanumab. Any, anyway. any product that ends in MAB means monoclonal antibody. Monoclonal Monoclonal antibody. Okay, so uh, as always, here are some of the the headlines. Borrowing from Cancer's Playbook to Find a Treatment for Alzheimer's Disease, says CNN. Trying to Solve the Alzheimer's Puzzle, says the Washington Post. New Drug Shows Promise in Reducing Abnormal Brain Proteins Linked to Alzheimer's, says Fox News. And Fortune says Biogen Drug Study Shows Early Promise Against Alzheimer's Disease. So, Don, let me start by asking you to, uh, to describe for us what this study was and what they found. Sure. One of the things I like about doing this podcast is that I get a, I get a chance to learn about stuff that I don't ordinarily know about. Um, and yeah, this, me is too. Actually, this is actually one of them. So let, let me see if I can give a little bit of background in terms of um, what the study was trying to address. And um, it leads into the underlying cause of Alzheimer's disease. And, and it's not really known what causes Alzheimer's disease. There's, I learned that there's a tremendous amount of um, controversy over the subject, although there's really one main hypothesis, and I think it's being more and more borne out as being the underlying cause of, of what causes um, Alzheimer's disease. And that is that there are these proteins in the brain that get produced by enzymes into these things called alpha-beta proteins. And they're basically small proteins that are in the brain that appear to either um, themselves, when they're in high enough concentration, disrupt Um, the uh, electrical signals that go across synapses, or they seem to fold and aggregate and then crystallize and then form these plaques in the brain, which is is really the way uh, this disease is diagnosed. And there are some people who think that, in fact, in the same way that prions can produce disease in brains, these AB proteins can, um, from one seed AB protein, propagate through the brain and then produce these ever-growing plaques. And it seems to be a process that occurs over about 20 years. And then um, as we get into our 50s, 60s, and 70s, if we're so inclined genetically or if um, we're unlucky enough to have these particular kinds of enzymes, we begin to develop the manifestations of Alzheimer's disease. And it's a whole spectrum of diseases, of of manifestations that culminate in um, very, very severe dementia. One of the other interesting things that I found out about this was that I didn't realize it, but people with Down syndrome have a much higher um, likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease at an earlier stage and at a much higher rate. There's also a genetic predisposition separate from Down syndrome where um, people are autosomal dominant for the gene that produces this particular protein, and they get it, uh, Alzheimer's disease, typically in their 30s, and it, it, it occurs with a very high penetrance. So there's been a number of potential treatment approaches. Um, one is to block these enzymes that take this protein called a preprotein, 
which is cleaved to produce the AB protein, which is really the offending agent. This is the amyloid precursor protein. Amyloid right? precursor protein, PPP, right? Precursor. Right. APP. Yep. APP. So there are, there are the one approach would be to block enzymes that break that protein down, therefore lower the amount of this AB protein that's floating around in the brain. There are um, vaccines that have been postulated that could, can actually do that through um, active immunization or passive immunization where there's a, a monoclonal, there, there's an antibody that is introduced that will actually attach to these AB proteins and sort of um, not immobilize them, but they'll neutralize them and they'll make them available for um, the macrophages in the brain, microglia, to sort of chew them up and, and, and get rid of them. There are also some other anti-aggregation agents, but much of this work has been done in animal models because nobody has really um, gotten the science far enough along to be able to actually test these in humans, except for this one product that we're going to talk about in this paper, aducanumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that was directed by screening through a whole bunch of panels of B cells, which are the cells that produce antibodies, and finding those that react to, that have been programmed to react to this particular AB protein. They took those B cells, they grew them up, they produced these monoclonal antibodies from these B cells, and they tested them in, in a mouse model, and they seemed to be able to show that there were lots and lots of um, benefits in terms of reduction of these plaques. In mice, yeah. In mice. And so they've, they've, they've taken this into the clinic, and that's what this paper is about. So this is a um, sort of a, is a, randomi- a double-blind randomized controlled trial in patients with early onset Alzheimer's disease, what they call prodromal or mild Alzheimer's disease, as defined by certain testing with a PET scanner. And so it's a phase 1B RCT, which is intended to determine safety and tolerability and the pharmacokinetics. So the authors say up front that this is not powered to look for a clinical benefit. But what what they were looking for was, as I said, safety, pharmacokinetics, and tolerability. So they identified 165 patients at 33 sites who had prodromal or mild Alzheimer's disease. And they gave them monthly intravenous doses of this antibody um, at increasing concentrations every month for a year. So the concentrations were one, three, six, or 10 milligrams per kilogram. 140 individuals were enrolled into the study, completed the study, and 40 dropped out mostly due to um, adverse events. That was about 25% had adverse events among the placebo group. And then there were 23, 19, and up to 38% had adverse events in the group that got drugged, depending upon how much drug they got. The baseline was um, pretty much, pretty much um, well-balanced across arms and doses. And the idea was to look at these PET scans after six months, and then after 12 months, also do cognitive testing to see if there had been any um, improvement in both the anatomical picture through the PET scans of the the abnormalities in the brain, as well as their cognitive scores on these tests looking for evidence of dementia. So as far as the results were concerned, I got to say, I thought the results were pretty remarkable in terms of the effect. I think it, it, it probably even surprised the uh, authors. They point to figure one, which obviously we can't display to the listener, but it was a series of brain scans that had different colors at, at various points along the um, year, year-long period, and they show in the placebo group these red splotches in the brain scan, which um, indicate abnormality, which were there at a fairly high degree at baseline, and then continued to be there for the ent- entire duration of the follow-up period. And in comparison to the um, active 
drug group, there was a remarkable improvement in these PET scans. It's, it's just unequivocal. And they had specific measures in terms of um, not only the image, but certain things that PET scans measure that I just don't understand, but they saw a quite significant and dose-dependent improvement in these PET scan measurements that are sort of compatible with what you're seeing on the figure. And those were seen within six months, and they continued to improve over um, 12 months, which is really pretty remarkable if you think about it, the, the fact that these people probably had been developing these lesions in the brain for at least 20 years. But I think the more interesting thing was that they were able to see that there was substantial improvement in the testing, the, the sort of the cognitive testing that they did on these individuals at the 24-month period. And I, I don't want to get into the actual tools that they use, but it was essentially a kind of a global function or a global measure of the individual's function, like can they keep up, can they... A uh, dementia scale, essentially. One was a dementia scale, but the other one was you actually ask the individual as well as ask their caretaker, are they able to take care of themselves? Are they keeping a tidy household? Are they remembering things? So it's not just memory, it's really sort of your executive functioning. And um, they all improved to a pretty remarkable degree. And this is the first therapeutic study to, to have shown this. Right. That, this, this is there have been several others that have been equivocal right. for various reasons that the authors um, point to. But this was one where it was a product that was, that was both shown in, in a laboratory setting, but was also um, shown to cross the blood-brain barrier easily, so it was very accessible to these lesions. And as far as safety was concerned, it was, there, was, there were adverse events, and there were some, um, some um, sort of more severe a- adverse events, but they weren't so severe as, I believe, for anybody to be hospitalized. No, but quite a lot of quite a, a number of the participants had to withdraw because right. of these adverse events. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. it was it was a substantial it was dosing, number. Yeah, it was it was limiting on the on the product, but it right, was, and the, and, the, and those events were what they call amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, but they're associated in, in essence with the, the disease process being interrupted and there being a little bit of inflammation, a little bit of brain swelling, producing headaches and vomiting, and you know, so not insignificant side effects, but uh, and that may well limit the applicability of this particular the uh, approach but you know it shows in my opinion shows great promise right and it, it was also quite uh interesting that most of those inflammatory responses which is basically one assumes that the the antibody is inducing an inflammatory response around these beta amyloid plaques and that's what's causing this edema this brain edema which is which is not nothing this, you know this is a serious limiting side effect, but most of those occurred very early in the treatment protocol and then resolved, uh, self-resolved, implying that the antibody, you know, triggered this inflammatory response, presumably coincident with, you know, tagging of these beta amyloid plaques and these oligomers, and then the microglia, these brain macrophages, which will basically come in and clean everything up, eat up these tagged plaques and take them away. And after that, the inflammation resided. So, you know, one wonders that if this went into practice, whether you can in some, to some degree mitigate that right. by a slow dose escalation. Mm-hmm. So, so, so Chris, keep, keep going with that, because tell me about your you know, take on this study. Was this, was this a study that you think that we can um, put a lot of weight into, or were there concerns that you had? And in particular, can I just ask you, because I know you've got a lot of experience with clinical trials. Can you just talk us through a little bit the um, this was a this was a phase what phase one B one B Can you talk us through a little bit those phases? 
Ah, I wish what you hadn't asked me that. Um, <laughs> my, my students often ask me, what is the difference between phase 1A and phase 1B? And actually, well, just I don't give have us the big good... picture, phase 1, 2, 3, and 4. Sure. I mean, the, the general paradigm is that phase 1 studies are really focused on macro safety events. And what I mean by that is, you, you know, typically with a phase 1 study, you will enroll a very small cohort of maybe a dozen or less individuals. This obviously was a little bit bigger, hence this is a phase 1B, where they're sort of moving towards looking at efficacy. But most phase 1 studies are quite small. They can be 10 individuals. And, you know, in drugs, in drug studies, what you're often trying to do is to push the dose as far as you can until you start to trigger some sort of limiting side effects. And the purpose is really to look at tolerability rather than to look at efficacy because the sample size is obviously so small. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what one can learn from a phase 1 study is pretty limited because, you know, that you're not looking to see, does it, does it, you know, does it work? Does it work? Does it cure the disease or treat the disease that you're, you're interested in? You're really looking to see, does it have, does it do something horrible that would make you make this like a non-starter? And what's the optimal dose? And what's the optimal dose, right? How far can you go on this? And so they've, you know, they've, done a slightly larger study, which is actually including clinical endpoints. And that, I think, is what makes this a phase 1B. Phase 2 studies are are now sort of looking at much larger sample sizes. You could be looking at a couple hundred individuals, typically. And now you're looking at preliminary evidence of efficacy. You're looking at different dosing strategies, you know, different, um, not just like how many milligrams of the product or the nanograms of the product, but like at what schedule? Are you going to give it twice a day, three times a day, four times a day, once a week? You know, those sort of practical questions. And also starting to look at the, the the performance of the product in different populations. You know, here, for example, they looked at very early stage Alzheimer's disease, but a phase two study might well look at, well, what about patients who have established Alzheimer's disease? Could you achieve some sort of, you know, recovery of mental function in a patient who already has advanced dementia? So that would be the kind of question that you would start to ask in phase two. And these phase two studies are in a way sort of testing the range of hypotheses hypotheses about how the drug could be used in clinical practice. And then once you you feel like you have a sort of a, a consolidated answer about where the, the drug would typically be used and what main target population, then you would go into phase three trials through a series of negotiations with the, you know, your regulator, in this case, it would probably be the FDA, to decide what would the, the confirmatory large-scale safety and efficacy studies look like. And those would typically involve several thousand subjects and be based around a hard endpoint such as function or like ability to do well on an exam or, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, we could also include normalization of PET scans. So, I mean, it could be many well, different things. Well, but I think the authors alluded to that and, and, they, and they seem to indicate that that is, is not always necessarily going to be the outcome that you want because there are people who have very abnormal PET scans who have no dementia whatsoever Absolutely. and vice versa. Absolutely. So the, the PET scan is a, is a surrogate marker of the presence of amyloid beta plaques in the brain, but it is not synonymous with Alzheimer's disease per se. So, so part of the reason they, they do phase two trials is in part because, um, I, my understanding was that in part because they're much cheaper to do than a full-on phase three study where you have much higher numbers. But you're saying that the, it's also to allow them to kind of refine the target population and the target circumstances for the intended intervention. That's correct. And and it's not necessarily that you're you're locked into one target pop- population, but when when a, a, a company is, is looking to license a new product, they're going to have to come up with what is the primary indication, which is, means what is the group for which you have generated your data 
that you can then present to your regulator and say, we are offering this product for patients with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease aged between, you know, 15 years and 99 years or something like that. Yep. And, and, and that, you know, given as a, a treatment on on a monthly basis at a, at, a, at a following dose range. And that would be your indication. So the entire sort of body of evidence that you're presenting in that dossier f- for the purposes of licensure is to support that like one sentence pithy statement. Indication. Indication, right. But then you would presumably go on and look at other indications. So you got phase ones, two, and three. There's a phase four. We don't need to get into that. But uh, so you said phase one, we're not looking at efficacy, but but, but they are here. And so what's going on? Uh, well, just because phase one studies are not intended to provide definitive evidence of efficacy does not mean that you're not going to collect efficacy data in the hopes that something pops up. And I think that was the case here, that they did all these these um, mental status exams, hoping that they could see a change in function, not just a normalization of a PET scan. And I, I think you said it well, Don. They, were, they must have been delighted to see these, these results. Yeah, and does the, yeah. Does the, especially does since the it was not that, powered to show that. Right. Yeah. Does the fact that the study wasn't powered and wasn't designed to answer that question, does that change your your uh, the way that you interpret the results at all? Uh, oh, certainly. I mean, I, I I don't think that anyone would look at this and say this is definitive evidence that aducanumab is the is the the solution to Alzheimer's disease. I think what you could say is my. Goodness, these are provocative and encouraging results, and boy, do we ever need an advanced phase two or phase three study to confirm it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, my my take on this is the fact that these studies were not designed to answer this question uh, doesn't mean that we ignore the the really compelling data that they've generated, but it does sort of put it in a little bit of of a context that the study wasn't designed to answer this question, and this is what we found. That's really encouraging, but you still you would need more before you would say, okay, this is a this is a this is the solution to a particular problem. Right. So, uh, Chris, give us give us your critique. Well, I, you know, if if to sort of recap the history of. Alzheimer's um, research in in regards to the pathogenesis of the disease. There, you know, when when the disease was originally described, there were these two pathological findings on autopsy. The one was the extracellular beta amyloid plaques, which are the target of the of the aducanumab right, drug here. Right, not the tau protein. Not the tau protein. And then the second one is the presence of these intracellular neurofibrillary tangles made mm-hmm. of this stuff called tau. And so the the literature has sort of long debated, is it the amyloid plaques that lead to Alzheimer's disease, or is it the tau proteins that lead to Alzheimer's disease, or is it both? And at least from the mouse data, and now supported by these data, uh, one could argue that it is the amyloid, but perhaps it's the tau protein that is the effector. That is to say, the amyloid sort of sets up a cascade of events that culminates in these intracellular tau protein Or plaques. true, true, unrelated. Or true, true, unrelated. But that, you know, there is sort of like a, a stepwise progression. And there's, there's some data from that review article that we looked at that uh, talks about these transgenic mice who cannot produce tau, and so they do create beta amyloid plaques, but they they don't become right. demented. Right. And, and you can also trigger tau downstream without needing amyloid plaques to lead to the, the creation of the neurofibrillary tau protein tangles. And, you know, you can therefore create uh, Alzheimer's disease in the absence of beta amyloid plaques. And so it, it is very plausible that you're looking at a stepwise, you know, the beta amyloid plaques 
are the upstream event, and then the downstream you have all these subsequent events. And that would be very helpful in, in understanding why it is that so many patients, when they're looked at in autopsy studies, show that they have beta amyloid plaques in their brains, but show no symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, because it's not just the amyloid plaques. It could be that there's a multi, multi-step process leading to this disease. So I thought these data really were, were helpful because the, the aducanumab antibody only interdicts the beta amyloid plaque mm-hmm. and yet mm-hmm. led to apparently, we should again always temper this, but apparently led to a, a, a normalization or an improvement on clinical performance, uh, indicating that either the process of, of dementing was arrested or slightly receded. And so that would, that would you know, definitely say, you know, it's the, the 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 weight of evidence is now shifting towards the 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 supposition that it is the beta amyloid plaques that are initiating this process even if that is by itself insufficient to lead to alzheimer's disease it is necessary in most cases to result in alzheimer's disease so it sounds like both of you are are pretty positive on the study as as was i but i, I i'm curious any any concerns any things that uh, you know stuck out to you as things that would you know, potentially reduce your enthusiasm for the results. Well, well, the the area, the the vasogenic edema, the um, amyloid-related imaging abnormality uh-huh. hyphen edema, um, does sound like a bit of a buzzkill uh, here. I mean, that can you, that can was, you say that more is, about what that means? Yeah, so it's triggering an inflammatory response in your brain, and you know that's going to cause symptoms like headache and you know, wobbly gait and confusion um, and potentially could be much worse. Um, in this case, all the patients who, who, who developed this outcome um, basically either withdrew from the study and then recovered or were able to resume dosing after some time and the symptoms eventually resolved That's over the, time. Yeah, that was one of the problems that I had, um, that that those individuals who developed this had to be tracked more frequently and, and they, they're... they're I think their status had to be unblinded. So there was some chance that right. these these results were an effect of that small group of, of individuals who developed this adverse event being unblinded. And the authors own up to that, but I think that's a potential threat to the to the validity. But the other thing that 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 I thought was really interesting and was compelling about these data was that there really is a dose response effect. Yeah, that was so persuasive. It's very persuasive that with the increasing doses, you saw a more beneficial effect in all of the parameters that they measured. And there was an effect over time. So there was an improvement over time and an improvement over dose. And to me, those are, you know, those are really compelling aspects to the story. Yeah, so one of the things we really never never talked about in this this program before are the the Hill criteria, the Bradford Hill criteria yeah. for for causality. Explain those to us, Matt. Yeah, so these were um list of of criteria around trying to when you try to determine a cause and effect relationship uh developed by Sir Austin Bradford Hill, the English statistician back in the 1960s around the whole cigarette and lung cancer issue. Now, in this case, we're dealing with experimental evidence. He was uh, in the case dealing with the case of of observational studies where obviously it's harder to tell cause and effect. Um and he came up with this list of, of nine. They were not meant to be like, this is the checklist for when you have causation, but you know, they were sort of a, a, a set of guidelines that he came up with. And they have been very, very well critiqued, and I won't go through the critique of them. Modern epidemiology has a, has a really nice critique of them, and I, I share a lot of concerns, but there were a few things that are in there. He had these nine criteria, strength, consistency, specificity, temporality, 
biologic gradient, plausibility, coherence, experiment, and analogy. I, I, I don't love the criteria, but there are certain ones of them that are interesting to me. Obviously, temporality, you know, exposure must come before the outcome if it's going to cause the outcome. But the two that I think that may be of relevance here are strength and biologic gradient, dose response. So the idea being that there would be, it's, it's, more evidence for a causal relationship if the increase in the dose of the exposure increases the risk of the outcome. And the stronger the effect is, the more likely it is to be causal. Now, you can you can debunk both of those. You can have um, you can show very easily that you can have very strong confounded relationships and dose-response relationships that come about from various things such as misclassification. But I think in general, when I see things like a dose response, it it certainly increases my my um, willingness to believe it a little bit. But I, I, I often wonder, though, when I see smaller studies with a, a perfect dose-response gradient like you see in this study, it, it almost feels sort of like too perfect to me. And I, I just wonder about that. I mean, maybe it's just me, but every study that I look at, the dose-response relationships are never mm-hmm. perfect. Yeah. Now I'm yeah. dealing with something, this you know, things beautiful. that are probably uh, less likely to be as perfect as something like this. But it does, you know, it does cause yeah. some some caution for me. I don't and again, know. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a pity we can't throw the, the PowerPoint slide in front of our listeners here, but the, you know, there are these two graphs that are sort of the mirror image of each other. The first being the change in the PET scan score. Um, and so you go from the left with a placebo, you know, compared with baseline, there is no change in the PET scan score. And then at the one, three, six, and 10 milligram per kilogram per month doses of aducanumab, you see a, a significant dose-dependent decrease in the PET scan scores, indicating that the PET scans are normalizing. And then in reverse, you see the the CDR-SB, this is the clinical dementia R rating rating Mm -hmm, scale, mm -hmm. sum of boxes, and I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it shows kind of the mirror image of the PET scan scores in terms of the improvement on the uh, dementia sc- scale, and so there there is this sort of biological relationship between the, the the you know the intensity of the signal of the beta amyloid plaque present on the PET scan um, inversely associated with the performance on the mini mental status exam and the CDR. And that that I thought was just really powerful. But I agree, it, it is a it is a mighty pretty picture, and uh, I, I wish I could get my studies to look so pretty. <laughs> Especially with yeah. all those nice colors. Yeah, and such pretty colors. And so as we start to wrap up, just one more thing. I mean, do we have any, and, and I don't know that anybody of the three of us can really answer this question, but do we have any reason to believe these are meaningful changes? In other words, they're impressive changes mathematically, but um, you know, do we know that this is these are actually meaningful changes? I don't think the, I don't think the three of us do because I don't think we have the, enough familiarity with the with the tools and the tests yeah. to be able to yeah. say that they are they are meaningful, but they certainly do seem to be trending in the right direction. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, and I, I think this is really interesting evidence. Um, I would I would just sort of end with just a couple of concerns that I I had, which is Don, you mentioned that the the, the groups were reasonably well balanced, but they were they were they were not perfectly balanced in a way that I you know there were some things in in. Mm-hmm. In terms of the the randomized groups that that concerned me a little bit, I'm not sure it's enough that it would matter, but it did strike out st- stick out to me. And then, but the thing that really did concern me, I suppose there were two things. 
Uh, number one was the fact that you're dealing with a small sample size and you've got 25% attrition. And the attrition yeah, seemed to be high. related to the, the drug itself, this although I'm not totally or, – or related to severe um, side effects – whether yeah. they be from the the illness itself or the um, the drug, but but um, you know when you're losing 25 percent of your sample, it's a little hard to say, despite the fact that it was pretty well balanced between the groups. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, and this is a question for you all. I mean, is it inappropriate for me to throw in an extra level of skepticism, knowing that this was funded by the drug company that produced the drug? Of course. Uh, yeah, but you know, I think I, I I think that the authors put that out there in the third paragraph of the introduction, in, in a way that I hadn't seen in quite a while, where they where they delineated exactly what the roles of the people who were um, employees of the company and what was the role of the non employees, and they had an independent DSMB and they had independent evaluators. You know, I think that they did a very good job of transparency, and uh, you know, it's I'm, I'm not I'm not. I think that there is a role for the pharmaceutical industry in taking molecules like this to the clinic and actually establishing efficacy. It's not something that the that academics or the academy is ever going to do or the NIH is really ever going to do in, 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 in large amounts. So, so I think it's a proper role. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree completely. I, my, my only point being, is it is it fair that I set the bar a bit higher when I know that it's been funded by a drug company. I don't, yes, I don't No, I think it is fair. I think it is fair. And, and I think it's all about reproducibility as we have talked yeah. about many yeah. times before. I mean, I, I think it's incumbent upon the, the, you know, the, the research community to find another group that's not Biogen, that's not these guys to do a similar study and come up with the same kind of beautiful reproducible results. And then I think it gets to be even more compelling. It's the Steely Dan rule. You got to go back, Jack, and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Chris, you wanna you wanna have the last word? Uh, such as it is, I I'm so encouraged by the direction that this research is 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 going. You know, we we talked about this in a previous episode, the one we were talking about herpes simplex and Alzheimer's disease, and mm-hmm. the, one of the yep. you know the the twin weights around the neck of 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 the Alzheimer's research field has been the difficulty in being able to identify in vivo whether beta amyloid plaques are present or not. And so the PET scan has just like revolutionized this. Now that, now that they suddenly have a, a true and quantifiable biomarker that can be captured in real time and, and repeatedly. And living individuals. In living individuals is such a huge advance. Um, and with Alzheimer's research, it's very hard to know that you're really studying Alzheimer's disease versus Alzheimer's disease plus vascular dementia or you know, Parkinson's disease. And it's, it's like, you know, these conditions overlap to such a huge extent. And this has sent us down so many rabbit holes in the research in terms of like, should we be treating Alzheimer's disease with anti-inflammatories or with Mm -hmm. cardiovascular modifying drugs? But that's because probably we're actually treating the non-Alzheimer's dementia and treating the vascular dementia. And it's, it's just, it's all confounded. But now with a PET scan, we have, we have a much better tool for, for studying this. And I think the biological plausibility of the plaque hypothesis and the beta amyloid hypothesis and, and the specificity of this antibody yeah. is, is really persuasive that we are, you know, whether this is the final answer, I doubt, but I think we are now on the right track. And I, I would not be surprised if it, within 10 or 20 years we actually had practical, you know, treatments for Alzheimer's disease that were based on the true biology of the disease. So cross your fingers. All right. Well, with that, let's let's move on to our, our second segment. So 
In our second segment, we want to talk about uh, an article that was uh, published in the, the New York Times. It was entitled, What These Medical Journals Don't Reveal, Top Doctors' Ties to Industry by Charles Ornstein and Katie Thomas. It was uh, reporting by both the New York Times and ProPublica, and it was uh, an analysis, uh, to the best of my ability to describe it, it was an analysis of lack of, of reporting drug industry ties and drug industry funding in published medical research. And it, it goes through um, a series of issues that have, that have arisen with uh, high-profile incidents of, of researchers not declaring uh, large amounts of money that they have received from uh, drug companies. So uh, in particular, there was a, a high-profile case that related to one particular researcher who had received uh, about uh, over $100,000, not directly to him, my understanding is, but to his his employer, so uh, essentially funding, for which he had uh, not declared this when publishing his research. And so it re-raises an issue that we've been talking about many times on this podcast, which is, you know, the conflicts of interests that people have when they take funding from drug companies and how that potentially could skew both the the research findings and the way that those findings are interpreted and packaged and sold in a in a research publication. And Don, yeah. we ended the the last uh, segment, and I had asked the question in thinking of the the particular last study that we were looking at around the amyloid plaques, whether I should set the bar higher because this was a drug company study. Well, now we're in the case where it isn't a drug company study. It's an independent uh, organization, uh, 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 an academic institution who is receiving drug company funds, but then either not declaring it, or I suppose even in the cases where one does declare it, it has the potential to affect, you know, the the conduct of the research and the ability to report that information accurately. So I guess my question to you both is, is there anything new here? Did we learn anything from this, this investigative piece that we didn't already know? And if so, what are the, what are the lessons that we should be taking away from this? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the things that I took away from the article was that um, there, there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity in this whole area. And I found myself thinking, well, you know, I'm on a DSMB and I've taken some money from um, a drug company being on a DSMB for that particular activity. Or there was, a, there was a, a research project that was funded by Novartis that I was involved in. And it had, you know, nothing to do with a product necessarily of Novartis. But, uh, you know, should I be declaring that? And yeah, I'm on the IRB, and we wrestle with this also, and 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 sort of the the, the threshold amount of money that is considered to be corrupting is five thousand dollars, and you know if it's less than five thousand dollars, then it's not considered to be something that would sway your opinion. Whereas if it's over five thousand dollars, and therefore you don't need to declare it, if it's over five thousand dollars, you do need to declare it. I am uh, totally willing to be corrupted for much less than five thousand dollars. And is yeah. that is that five thousand dollars a year? Is that five thousand dollars? I think it's in a year. Per, I think it's in okay. a. I think it's in a, but I'm not positive about that. Sure, but sure. the thing that came across to me was that that it's a difficult situation because there's so much ambiguity, and I think that the researchers truly don't know what to do and 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 don't know how forthcoming they need to be. I, you know, I didn't get the impression that there was a tremendous amount of malfeasance among the people that they outlined for this study, but it, yeah. but because of the confusion, they got kind of caught with their pants down. And and it's it's it can be a very, very damaging thing for an academic career. So I think, you know, the journals need to get it right and the institutions need to get it right and all, all the all the, the, the trade organizations need to get it right. 
I, mm-hmm. I agree with you. I mean, I think it gets to the question of whose responsibility is this? I mean, clearly there, there's no way for a, a journal to know that you've received drug company fund, or there's no easy way, I should say, for a, a journal to know that you've received drug company funding if you don't declare it. You know, whether the journal's policy is the same as, say, you just described the the policy at, at Boston University, but whether the journal's policy is the same as the the uh, university's policy at $5,000, I'm not sure that's, that's true for all journals. And, you know, it can get very confusing. I have also, um, I've done a, a training course for a, a, a drug company in which I was paid for that. Do I have to declare that. Now, it wasn't over the $5,000, and I don't see how it in any way would relate to anything that I you know, I might be studying, because I don't study anything that is related to any product. But it, it does strike me as um, unclear, despite the, the efforts to clarify this over the years. Chris, what's your, what's your sense? Where's the line? Oh, I don't think there is a line, but it is... Um... I don't know. I don't. I, I. I. didn't feel quite as as forgiving. I think about these three cases that were in the New England, in, in the the New York Times article, as the two of you, because in in you know the argument that the money had gone to the institution is just another way of saying that this was a grant money. So like when I get money from the NIH, it doesn't come to me. I can't go. It doesn't go into my wallet. It goes to Boston University, and then I. But I have almost complete control over that money. So if you get a hundred thousand dollar grant from you know Company X to do research on Company X's product, you know that seems to me exactly the kind of thing that should raise red flags about conflicts of interest because it means that you do not have an unbiased view necessarily of the outcomes of your study, and that is what we're really worried about is whether there's misrepresentation. But but the money you get from the NIH that goes to Boston University that you have complete control over, you don't really because there's there's there are layers of oversight, so you can't take that money and pay the rent on a vacation home. Right. But I'm certainly going to put it on my paper that this fund, this research was funded by the NIH through this grant. Well, you're obligated to. Right. But, right. But even if I wasn't, I would say that because right. I think it's relevant. And whereas the, you know, the, the, one of the individuals here was, was slapped on the wrist for precisely not doing that of, you know, mentioning that he had written this paper about this product based on funds that came from the drug that made the product. And he didn't mention that. Mm. That seems to me that it completely crosses whatever line there is. I, I sympathize with your argument entirely about the DSMBs. I sit on two of DSMBs and I'm wondering like, oh my God, should I have been fessing up to that? But but the the conflict of interest is fundamentally different because when you're sitting on a DSMB, you're volunteering your time uh, as a civic duty to protect the safety of a group of participants in a trial who you don't know. But that's why you're there. But you're also getting paid for it. Yeah, but you're not doing. You you have no stake in the outcome of the trial. Like if it if if the drug succeeds or fails, sitting on the DSMB, I don't really care, right? What I want to know is how many patients in group X had the side effect versus group Y. That that's what I'm there looking at. Um, and in a sense, the, the, the product itself is almost immaterial because really we're focus, focused all on the safety and protection of the subjects. Yeah, I'm not sure that I completely agree. I'm not because, sure I because, do either. Because, because if, in fact, you're getting paid for that particular activity by the company that's running the trial, you may be very subtly persuaded to think that a particular uh, finding or outcome that you are impaneled to um, determine the, the relevance of would shade in favor of the, the company. I mean, I, I, mean it, I, I can see that as happening. Isn't there? Isn't there a lot of research that 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 you know since the bans have been put in place on on these? 
big uh, expensive junkets that they drug companies would take doctors on to get them to sit to prescribe their drugs that actually just just offering a free lunch will often be enough to get uh, a doctor to prescribe something that we are often influenced by these 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 small amounts of money so i don't i don't know what the right answer is but it does it does strike me as it's just not clear how much money would influence somebody and where the you know and, and it also isn't clear to me that that declaring it well obviously that's all for the good that declaring it solves the problem mm-hmm. i mean maybe the the better part of valor is for us to simply declare that we sit on dsmbs for these you know these these companies mm-hmm. you know i don't think there's there's any there's any harm in doing so it seems like it's unnecessary but it's probably the better thing to do in the future and i guess i will do it yeah yeah i guess that's i guess that's probably it all right this I don't, is where it's going we, we have we have uh, talked about this topic many times before, so I don't want to I don't want to take it too far. I just wanted to sort of think about whether or not there was was anything new in here, and I do want to you know continue to 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 read about and think about this However, issue because I will go on record as saying that my declaring that I sit on I, I, I give my time to be on on two DSMBs to protect the subject's safety is not the same as why did this guy not declare on fifty publications, including the New England Journal, that he had received all this money from the drug I agree company with that you. he was it's writing not papers the same. about. I, I absolutely it's agree like with you that it's not are, the same. We are you know we are changing our behavior you know to be uber safety uber conscious, but the the crime is not being on a DSMB. It is taking money and not declaring it. It can be very egregious. Yeah, and I feel these were. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and I, I, you know, there's 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 degrees, obviously, but I, I think we want to think carefully about where those lines are, or at least you know get better at figuring out ways to remove these conflicts of interest, or or, or come up with ways that we can we can separate out these processes so that the conflict is not there in the first place. But obviously, so much money is involved that that that's unlikely to happen. Anyway. So let's move on to our last segment, our favorite, our amazing and amusing segment, where we want to highlight some of the wacky things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. A look at the weird, wacky things that happen in our field, as well as those that inspire us. So do you guys mind if I uh, go first this time? Sure. Sure. Please do. So I'm going to read you the abstract of a study. I'm not going to read the the title, but you'll figure it out once I get into it. So we all um, teach to various degrees. I am on a teaching sabbatical this uh, semester, so I'm not actually teaching. But I, I certainly think a lot about uh, teaching and you know how we decide who is, in fact, a good teacher. Those are teaching evaluations. Generally, it's the way that we do this. <clears throat> so I thought this was an interesting study when I came across it. The uh, objectives for this says... Results from end-of-course student evaluations of teaching are taken seriously by faculties and form part of a decision based for the recruitment of academic staff, the distribution of funds, and changes to curricular. However, there is some doubt as to whether these evaluation instruments accurately measure the quality of course content. So we investigated whether the provision of chocolate cookies (laughs) as a content-unrelated intervention influenced teaching results. Oh yeah! So they did a they did a randomized controlled trial of, broke, of broke plus minus year, chocolate cookies. Broke third year medical students up into into different groups, um, some of which were the groups were randomly allocated to get 500 grams of chocolate cookies during an emergency medicine course session, and the remainders did not. They were all taught by the same teachers, and what did they find? Uh, they found that a total of 112 students completed the evaluation form, and the cookie group evaluated teachers significantly better than the control group. 
Bribery works, man. 113 versus 190. Course material was considered better uh, with various effect size and summation scores were better. So the conclusion is the provision of chocolate cookies had a significant effect on course evaluations. Good to These know. These findings question the validity of evaluations and their use in decision-making. So the, the title of the article was Availability of Cookies During Ac- an Academic Course Session Effects Evaluation of Teaching by Michael Hessler. And it was, uh, I can't even find the journal, Medical Education 2018. There's a lesson there to be learned there. Don't, don't do oatmeal, though, because that, that'll cost you. Never do oatmeal. And the worst thing you could ever do is to provide an oatmeal raisin cookie that people mm. see and they think is a chocolate chip cookie yeah. because then they're <laughs> so disappointed. Mad. All right, Chris, you want to go next? Yeah, I, I found this beautiful study and I wanted to highlight this for our, our producer, Leslie Talalian, um, who as those uh, may know, runs the Population Health Exchange at Boston University. She's the director. Is that right? You're the director. Yes, she's nodding. So Leslie's very interested in, in digital learning. And I found this really interesting uh, study in my favorite journal, The Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. And the study is called Integration in Emerging Social Networks Explains Academic Failure and Success. Lead author Christoph Stattfield from uh, Zurich in Switzerland. And so what these guys did was to take advantage of a, of a natural experiment. There was an engineering degree course that they offered their university. And unlike most courses where you apply to get in and the, the entry criteria are very strict, here the entry criteria were fairly loose and they let a lot of people in. Um, but in order to continue, you had to pass this very onerous, rigorous exam at the end of year one. And so there was like a lot of attrition and about half the class ex- is expected to fail to move forwards. For those who succeed, it's very prestigious and they're, they're academic or professional careers are launched. And for those who fail, it's quite a drubbing. And a lot of them don't even complete their bachelor's degree. And they sort of like drop out of the system. So it's a it's a high risk, high yield, but high penalty gamble that they go through. Now, these students who come to this program come from all around Europe. And so for the most part, they don't know each other. Um, and so they, they create this sort of cohort of around 230 students at the beginning of each year. And then they go forward and, you know, take their classes and eventually take this exam. And what the researchers wanted to know was what are the things that predict success in this? And particularly whether social networks that the students establish within themselves lead to success. And so at five points during this um, succession, they did these surveys with the students where they asked, you know, name all the other students that you've had con- had a positive interaction with, like, you know, hello, how are you doing? Have a nice day. Oh, I like your T-shirt. Something kind of neutral but friendly. Mm-hmm. And okay. how many people are naming the ones that they, they had said that to at multiple points in time? Um, and then also, which members of the group do they become friends with? And which members of the group did they, did they become study buddies with? And then they say, looked at the, they, they created all these networks and they found that the, the students who had formed these networks of study groups significantly outperformed the ones who sort of remained loners or isolated within the group and didn't actually integrate with the rest of the community. And they okay. challenged this in, in terms of all sorts of controlled models, you know, what were their GPAs in high school, you know, their financial resources, et cetera, et cetera. And still the, the network analysis turned out to be very robust, which is not a very shocking thought that being involved in, in groups of students who interact and collaborate and, and share notes and work together and solve problems together would be a particularly good way of learning engineering. 
Mm-hmm. But the the way that they described this and explained it was was so powerful. And they actually have a if you have time, the listeners can go online and they have a cartoon that shows these networks evolving over time and who fell in and who dropped out in terms of succeeding on the online exam. Now, the reason I think this is so interesting is that we are now moving into this era of online education, where mm-hmm. one of the big downsides to online education is that you lose the cohorting uh, and the direct interaction between students over time. And, and you know, if this research is, is correct, that there is a penalty to be paid for online you know, do it your own education or master's degrees. And I would, I would love to see, to see this as the, as the a stimulus for further discussions within the school of public health, because everybody is galloping down this road right now. And it's certainly and yet, the it way that, that, that there's, many there's a cost going. to be paid for it. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, sure. It's like a hyper isolation of, of humanity. No man is an Island. Yeah. Turns out really cool. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, Don, you're back in cleanup. All right. Um, you guys, you guys have cats? Yeah, no. Jackson cat. I had one had many, one. many years ago. All right, I, I'm not a, as as I've referred to before. I'm not a cat owner or my arms look like cat. hamburger. <laughs> I like cat cats though. I'm I'm a cat person. But my understanding is that cats are very finicky eaters. That they tend to they tend to um, be very very particular about what they eat. And and apparently this hmm. this for the for the cat food industry this is a bit of an issue. And it, I think finding the right combination of texture and food and taste for a new cat food product has been something that um, the authors of this paper, aptly put, has been dogging the industry for many years. I'm, I'm very worried about where this is going. <laughs> so I found an article by G.J. Pickering. Um, from of Long the, Pickering and Prober? No, those are the, the pediatric infectious disease people. From the Department of Biological Sciences at Brock University, St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, where okay. they did a study optimizing the sensory characteristics and acceptance of canned cat food by the use of a human taste panel. What? No. <laughs> That's wrong. So, so, so oh, hold re- on. So, so there. A study done Why? with former friends. Would... <laughs> so the ration. Why did they do it? Why would. Why would. Hmm. People eating cat food tell you anything about whether or not a cat is going to like cat food. <laughs> well, see, no, that's the point. That's the point. Is is that apparently this is a very high stakes game, and they need to be able to have a, a system whereby they can emulate what they think a cat likes. So what they mm-hmm. did is they set up a panel of humans, and they they broke. Their evaluation of the two component parts of cat food, meat chunks and gravy (laughs) gel. (laughs) And they had these people evaluate 18 flavor attributes. No. Yeah. So it was sweet, sour acid, tuna, herbal, spicy, soy, (laughs) salty, cereal, (laughs) caramel, chicken, methionine, vegetable, ophali. Meaty, burnt flavor, prawn, rancid, and bitter. And catnip. And then four texture dimensions, hardness, chewiness, greediness, and viscosity. And so, what, so what they did is they, they impaneled these, uh, I think it was students and staff from the university. There were like um, 18 of them. And apparently there was a 40% dropout rate <laughs> initially because the people just were so grossed out. Having to eat and evaluate cat food. That is gross. But now that we're here, I got to know what they found. 
30% prospective panelists opted not to complete the screening exercise or to continue with subsequent sessions with dislike of cat food products cited as the most common reason for non-competition. I did, tried. They pay, did they pay these people? They did not pay these people. I once tried a, a spoonful so no of my, of interest. Of my cat's even, food. They didn't even ask them whether they owned cats or not. It was chunky chicken and cheese. Oh. It, was, it was absolutely oh. repulsive. That was the last oh. time. That was back in high school. That is so gross. So, so basically, what they what they came up was a panel of of human based <laughs> evaluations and characteristics for human panels to te- test the, uh, the 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 tastefulness, the the, the post nasal aroma apparently oh, of gross <laughs> of some of these foods, so that now they can bring it into the field and test it against the acceptability with a panel of live cats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, my, oh, my cat's food pushing, is, back, pushing back the barriers of scientific ignorance. I love it. My, my favorite cat's food is my food or the dog's food. Gross. I know a, I know a cat that really, really likes asparagus. Really? Yeah. Oh. Which is really bizarre. I had a cat that wouldn't would, cat I had a cat that smell different eat. after they eat asparagus? I don't, I have, oh, I don't think so. That's an important question to know. Um, the other thing that I learned uh, is the Latin name for cats and dogs. Uh, Felix and Canis, Canis? No, Felis Catus. Felis Catus and, and Canis. 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 Canis Familiaris. Really? Yeah. Not Canis Canis? Dog Dog? No, Canis yeah. Familiaris. Lesson learned. Lesson Castor learned. Acer, All right. Well, that <laughs> is the end of our- to yet a new low. <laughs> we absolutely have. That is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on. You can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or you can tweet Chris at, at ID.Gill, or Don at, at DTheo1, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>